in the e-commerce village where I did my ethnography, the majority of entrepreneurs were actually migrant workers who had returned from the city. Small percent had received college degrees, some even in design and you know, marketing. But the majority were working class workers who used to engage in kind of manufacturing, um, construction or service works. And some have also dabbled in small business in the city. So they were already entrepreneurs in a way. are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. Internet-based entrepreneurship has flourished in China for the past decade and a half. This includes startups in big cities, rural areas experiencing an e-commerce boom, and middle-class women reselling luxury goods. My guest argues that for many of these individuals involved in digital entrepreneurship, reinventing oneself as an entrepreneur has been an appealing way to adapt to a changing economy and society. Indeed, this everyday labor of entrepreneurial reinvention is remaking China amid changing geopolitical currents. In her new book, The Labor of Reinvention, Entrepreneurship in the New Chinese Digital Economy, Lin Zhang explores the surge in digital entrepreneurialism against the backdrop of global financial crises, the US-China trade war, and the more recent pandemic. She argues that the rise of internet-based industries and practices has simultaneously empowered and exploited digital entrepreneurs and laborers. Despite embracing high-tech innovation, state-led entrepreneurialization does not represent a radical break with the past. Rather, such entrepreneurship has also reinforced traditional Chinese ideas about state power, labor, gender, and identity. Lin Zhang is an assistant professor of communication and media studies at the University of New Hampshire. In this conversation, Lin and I discuss global capitalism and the digital economy from a non-Western perspective and how the contradictions of entrepreneurialism have played out in China. We began by distinguishing the concepts of entrepreneurialism and entrepreneurship. Thereafter, we explored the surge in entrepreneurialism in China following the 2008 financial crisis and how many urban migrants began returning home to their villages to pursue internet-based entrepreneurship. But this was not all win-win. While the internet offered new opportunities, the returnees also faced numerous challenges. Lin and I also examined the opportunities available to elite urban-based entrepreneurs with university education, access to capital, and widespread social networks, and the conditions that facilitated the rise of non-elite entrepreneurs. We concluded by discussing what motivated sections of the Chinese diaspora to return home to start a business and China's reinvention and innovation efforts vis-à-vis the United States. I hope you enjoyed this conversation I recently had with Lin Zhang. Lin, it's great to see you. Congratulations on this fantastic book that I've just finished reading. It's a it's a wonderfully empirically rich book and it took me a while, but <laughs> I can't wait to talk about this book with you. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. When we're trying to understand China and this enormous success in promoting development, reducing poverty, one thing that comes out is how a lot of people were very entrepreneurial. Mm. You had the rise of the entrepreneurs, right? So let us start there. Because that is really what you've been working on, I think, for almost 10 years, right? So what do you mean by entrepreneurialism, not just in a Chinese context, in a general sense, and how did it emerge? And I'm particularly interested because I suppose there's something entrepreneurial about all of us as humans. <laughs> we, we want to be an entrepreneur. I, I don't know. So to tell us a little bit about the concept as you understand it. Uh, so for me, entrepreneurialism is different from entrepreneurship in a way. It builds mm-hmm. on it, but it's 
I refer to to it as this kind of ideology that really elevate, if not sometimes worship, the individualized entrepreneur as the kind of heroic driver of economic development,、uh, which. Also, in a way, celebrates the kind of frictionless economization of individual and sometimes also national differences as a way to energize capitalism. So I would call it a kind of a new kind of developmental thinking that really tries to kind of entrepreneurialize development through mechanisms like financialization and also sometimes offloading kind of economic risk to individuals. So instead of what you had in the past, right? So kind of radical redistribution. I would definitely say yes that China is not alone in this type of thinking, right? So this is actually, as you said, a global part of a global trend towards neoliberalization in the post Cold War world. And in kind of theorizing entrepreneurialism in China, I'm drawing on you know works of scholars you know、um, produced in in other parts of the world as as well. For example, Gina Neff, Elizabeth Winsinger, and Sharon Zuki, sociologists, they first came up the concept of so-called entrepreneurial labor.、Uh, actually, was focusing on the context of Silicon Alley in New York City, right? So the blurring of line between you know what we traditionally associate with entrepreneurship, right, risk taking. And all that with、um, labor. Now you know this kind of mentality became、uh, normalized in a way.、Um, but also scholars writing about、uh, non-Euro-American societies, like Lily Irani, who really highlighted entrepreneurialism's connection to development in India, and also、uh, Carla Freeman, who actually wrote about post-colonial entrepreneurial selves and a kind of reimagining of Caribbean culture of kind of reputation and respectability. So in my focus on China, I really, you know, try not to essentialize the Chinese experience with entrepreneurialism as something unique, but rather to kind of come up with、uh, what I think is a special, temporal, specific trajectory of entrepreneurializing the development. Some of its successes, for sure, but also what I see as some of the unresolved tensions and the contradictions there. I used to live in Silicon Valley. I was at Stanford for several years, and so obviously that is what sticks in the minds of many, right? Entrepreneurs, as in you know all these、um, startups that、mm. Palo Alto and and Menlo Park and this kind of Silicon Valley idea, and you see this in many many. Parts of the world. When I was reading your book, it got me thinking of a trip I made to Vietnam、mm. very many years ago. This was maybe twenty, twenty-three years ago. And what struck me was that in most of the houses that I passed through in some of these smaller towns—not Saigon, not Ho Chi Minh City, but the smaller towns. Was that everyone had something in their balconies? They were doing something. They were manufacturing something. You know,、yeah. it was this. They were never relaxing. There was this constant activity, and I was struck because I remember then there was this big discussion about Asian values. Some some leaders in East Asia were saying Asian values means hard work, discipline. I had this impression that that was what. It meant being an entrepreneur that you were doing something, you were working all the time, and you were making use of any space. Obviously, that is just one form, and there's this huge debate that I have read about also in your book that there are some positives with this kind of entrepreneurship, right? So, what you were saying earlier, you have state-led development, and then this interest in maybe making things more cost-effective. Mm. Encouraging this thing that everybody talks about these days—the buzzword innovation—we have to solve things quickly, cheaply, and so those are some of the positives. But、mm. there are also many, many other negatives associated with entrepreneurship, entrepreneurialism that that you're interested in. So tell us a little bit about some of these problematic aspects of entrepreneurialism as you see it, versus. What do you think has been good in relation to development? Right. So, since you brought up question about state efforts as promoting development and reducing poverty, so I, you know, focus on that as example. So, the proliferation of digital entrepreneurship of all kinds, really, as you just describe, 
in China, really, I think they interact with uh, kind of state initiatives to reduce poverty, for example, revitalize the countryside, and also uh, in the city restructuring, uh, reconstructing the so-called shanty towns uh, in the city, just to name a few. So one of the stories I told in the book is about rural e-commerce and peasant entrepreneurs. So I showed how in the kind of aftermath of the 2008 global crisis, the business interests of big private tech companies like Alibaba really converged with states' efforts of revitalizing the rural economy to solve the so-called three uh, rurals problems or Sanongwenti. You know, these efforts uh, work together in, in creating a kind of nationwide e-commerce boom, really, uh, in the past decade or so. And this kind of a private-public partnership has really kind of contributed positively in creating economic opportunities in the countryside, for example, and in restructuring and also digitalizing traditional industries like agriculture and manufacturing, for example, in the, in the village that I studied. And all these have turned China into a big digital nation that we know of today and contributed to the success of Chinese tech companies, not just in China, but also overseas. But the results in reducing rural inequalities, as I have shown in the book, are kind of mixed. So for example, in the Shandong villages, in which I did a lot of my ethnography, the fruits of e-commerce boom are not shared equally by uh, differently positioned villagers. Right. Actually, sometimes leading to more intra-village inequalities, I would say. And the other thing is that the kind of sustainability of industry in the village, in my case, that would be um, producing hand-waved grass products, is also questionable, as uh, you know, a lot of younger villagers do not want to um, you know, do the hard, but also less remunerated work of waving, and they all want to become entrepreneurs, they all, <laughs> all want to do e-commerce, right? Tell us, what is it that happened after 2008 that was different from what was happening before 2008? Because China was growing, its economy was growing rapidly, poverty was being reduced, but the financial crisis was a catalyst for a new form of entrepreneurship, as I understand it, right? So what was the situation in terms of the state encouraging entrepreneurship before 2008 and what happened afterwards that led to this huge uh, rise in entrepreneurialism? In the book, I actually consider 2008 a kind of watershed moment, right? The 2008 economic crisis. And one important role it plays is in, you know, making the state and also uh, the general public see the unsustainability of China's previous mode of development that really relied a lot of on export-oriented, low-cost uh, manufacturing, uh, manufacturing that relied on cheap labor and all, but also at the huge cost of the environment. And and then this kind of understanding propelled the nation to search for alternative models. And I think one, one of the paths, there are many different types of experiments uh, that happen in, uh, after that. One path has to do with, uh, you know, this kind of technological driven and also entrepreneurship centered restructuring of the economy, right? So that's when we started to, you know, see with also the boom in different types of technologies later on, right? So the 5G, 4G, uh, 3G, at the beginning 3G and then 4G, 5G mobile phones. And later on, all these kind of platforms that emerged and all the intersects with all these kind of technological trends in really propelling entrepreneurship from, from different, different parts. So also uh, returning to the previous kind of example I mentioned about rural e-commerce, when I started actually working on this projects in early 2010s, I you know, realized now that I was actually witnessing the beginning of a larger trend in which the migrant workers are actually returning to the countryside uh, instead of you know, just moving one way from the uh, countryside to the city, they're returning from the city either to the, restart their own business or you know, to find alternatives that's closer to home which provides some of the solutions that, you know, to the problems that they face in the city. We also see actually a lot of urban residents with urban um, residence permits or hukou uh, reverse migrate back to the uh, countryside or to smaller towns, especially during the pandemic, 
to escape the stress of living in big cities. So um, part of the reason why they're able to do so is also because of the kind of new flexible economic opportunities generated by new digital economies like e-commerce and re remote work, right? So that's kind of examples of the kind of novelty or newness in this entrepreneurialized economy after 2008. Even in Europe, in Norway, there's so much focus on becoming an entrepreneur or innovating. Innovation is the big thing. We are supposed to solve problems better. You use technology and all of that. But there has been, among my friends and colleagues, this, this idea that because we have such a good welfare state, because the government takes care of us, when we don't have an income, if you're sick, you know, you have unemployment benefit, the, the, the social welfare schemes are so comprehensive in this country, Norway, that it's almost like some people say we have become lazy. We don't really want to innovate because it's not very hard for us. Somehow we'll get by. The state is there. There's a safety net. Hmm. But in societies such as the United States, where social safety nets are not as well entrenched, there has been, some would say, much more of an interest to innovate, to take risks, because there are opportunities. And I'm thinking there must be something similar also in China, where maybe post-2008, there was interest in trying to supplement income, or maybe feeling secure somewhat, and wanting new challenges. That relates maybe to some people, some types of entrepreneurs. It could be elites. Yeah. It could be those with huge networks who want to do something different. Maybe they have the luxury of going back to the countryside. But it could also be those who don't have those networks, don't have the Tsinghua University education, <laughs> who want to innovate maybe because they want to earn more money. And then they could also be as you rightly mentioned, and I want us to focus a bit on the issue of migrants. You mentioned Huko. For those of my listeners who don't know how the Chinese scene works, I mean, you have a residence a permit, which mm -hmm. means that you basically you are classified as urban or rural. And I have, Lynn, over the years, met several of these migrants who drive cars, taxis, who do all these odd jobs. But they have a difficult time settling in these urban city centers. And for many years, for many decades, the only solution they had to supplement the income was to come to the big cities. But entrepreneurship, as I read in your book, gave them that opportunity to not just work in the cities, have a difficult life away from their families and children and their, and their parents, but they could actually return and make money. So tell us a little bit about how that worked. Because there are obviously some benefits, but there are also some challenges that these migrants faced when they went back home. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting question. So talking about Chinese migrant workers, actually their profile is quickly changing uh, in the past decade or so. And also, you know, there are different generations of them definitely face different types of challenges, opportunities. So a little bit of statistics so as of 2022, the average age of Chinese rural to urban migrant workers was almost 42 years old. So they're getting older and 27 of them were 50 or older. Right? So you can see the kind of change there. And as of 2021, almost 40% of Chinese workers were migrant workers, right? So they still occupy a kind of large segment of the working population because, you know, the, defined as those who hold hukou, as you said, mentioned, the rural hukou of residence permits. And only, but only 13% of these migrant workers have actually received college education, right? So they're still largely working class workers. So some of the major challenges faced by the majority of migrant workers in the cities are um, lack of social protection, you know, such as medical and social insurance. They can't send their children to school. Right, right. That's another bigger challenge, although, you know, a lot of, um, you know, municipalities are trying to resolve um, the problem there, but it's definitely a major problem. So a lot of the, uh, you know, um, parents face 
and then also um, culturally urban discrimination yeah. and the lack of social recognition, right? So you can imagine the lack of social protection is a bigger problem for uh, the so-called social, uh, the, the first generation of migrant workers who are increasingly getting older, right? Whereas for the second generation or younger generation of migrant workers, lack of social you know, recognition, uh, you know, lack of connection. So that leads to inequalities in terms of opportunities they have in the cities. And many of them are not really well paid. So they often have the the lower paid jobs. Yes, yes, for sure. So that's, I think, one of uh, definitely, you know, a lot of reasons to propel them to return to the countryside. In the e-commerce village where I did my ethnography, the majority of entrepreneurs uh, were actually migrant workers who had returned from the city. And some, uh, you know, maybe, you know, a small percent had received college degrees, some even in kind of design and, you know, marketing. But the majority were working class workers who used to engage in manufacturing, um, construction or service works. And some of have also dabbled in small business in the city. So they were already entrepreneurs in a yeah. way. <laughs> you know, they were kind of the driving force, I would say, behind the nationwide rural e-commerce boom returning home to start a new business, mostly building on, uh, actually based on my observation, building on existing industries already in the area. But sometimes also in some, uh, you know, fewer cases, bringing new business ideas back, new industries back to the countryside has not only transformed their life trajectories, but also kind of rural industries and also the communities there, right? So in comparison to the cities, the threshold of starting a you know, business in the uh, countryside is definitely lower in terms of uh, rental costs. Usually they would just work from home, right? In their own, in their own house. And also labor costs. Is cheaper. They can really utilize sending family members. Sometimes their older parents, and sometimes the teenage, you know, kids also help after school, right? So, um, but in many ways, the rural-urban divide did not really disappear. <laughs> in the case, uh, for example, uh, one of the biggest problems faced by many of the rural e-commerce businesses I talked to is recruiting skilled talents in the countryside, like designers and marketing people, right? So you can imagine not many of them want to you know, work <laughs> in the countryside. So let's say I am an urban migrant and mm. I'm working in a low paid job, you know, long hours. I've met many of those people in Beijing, particularly in Beijing. Yeah. Now 4G and 5G are coming. So if I'm a migrant thinking that, okay, I have a choice, I can stay in the big city. And, and far away from my children and my parents, my wife, or I can go back and do the same kind of stuff that I was doing from my room, my dorm in, in the big city. So let me go back. And e-commerce is one way in which I can make money because I've seen Jack Ma, I've seen Alibaba, I've seen all of these guys, you know, those heroes who are showing us that China can be as innovative as the U.S., so th those stories are coming out. So I go back home and I have, of course, e-commerce is just one aspect I, I imagine, right? Yeah. There are many other areas that I could dabble in, as you were mentioning. It could be uh, promoting something local, a local product and using the internet to sell or shipping, as you point out in many of your cases, shipping these goods to the big city. So in a way, making money, but also doing something for local development. But Lynn, not everything was fine and dandy. There were some problems. And mm -hmm. one of the interesting things I read, or many interesting things that I read in your book is that the competition between yeah. all of these migrants, because a lot of them are moving back and there was more competition and that led to certain challenges. So to tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so definitely competition has transformed rural communities, right? So it's, it's not to say that competition didn't exist pre the internet. Competition was there when a lot of the county level business or rural business were established for export oriented reasons. But e-commerce or this kind of platform mediated commerce really can intensify that in a lot of ways. So for example, in the, the villages or the set of villages where I, I did my ethnography, engage, uh, villagers engaged in selling the handicrafts products. But I think what's interesting about that is because they sell and produce in the same village or same space, right? So that actually intensified the competition because not only, you know, 
do they kind of compete each other on the kind of platform selling level, but also they can compete with each other in the production side of it, right? So for example, one product, if you know, someone see one product selling really well on the internet. And it's easy to tell because on the internet, you have all these rankings, right? Yeah. So we search something on, for example, Amazon, and in the Chinese case would be Taobao um, or Tmall or Jingdong. And you will see the best selling products listed, right? In the first page. And you all want to get there, right? That would give you more clicks and generate more revenue. And that's when, you know, if a product or if it's a new design sells really well, a lot of the other um, producers would actually try to replicate that, right? So this kind of Shenzhai or copycat. Right, the knockoff products. Right, the knockoff products. So in a way, the e-commerce, because of the kind of algorithm-mediated economy, actually intensified what I try to argue in the book is that intensified this kind of knockoff or Shenzhen economy in the villages. We envision that to help you know, it would help upgrade industry. But in reality, especially with, um, you know, the coming of Pinduoduo, which is another platform that's different from, you know, established platforms of Taobao really kind of highlights cheaper or less costly products and appeal to a kind of different consumer segment, right? So because of, you know, the coming of platforms like this, and it really, you know, led to the proliferation sometimes of low quality products. <laughs> so that's one of also the problems, right? Competition and low quality products and what this means for uh, industrial upgrading in the countryside, right? Moving up the value chain and what it means for uh, rural relations, business competitors, not just, you know, sometimes we're in extended family members. You can imagine in Chinese countries, a lot of them, you know, share the same family name, right? So they were extended family members. Now they have to, in one way, help each other for sure, but also compete with each other, right? So that definitely created a lot of tensions in these areas. So the countryside is different, you know, when they engage in e-commerce and other business, different from the ones that we used to do, you know, in the, in the Chinese countryside in a way. So this thing about the knockoff products, obviously this plays into some of the major criticisms that the West has often had mm. with, with China and other countries. Oh, you know, the fake goods are being produced. We do all the innovation and this is just copied. But this also, of course, as you show in the book, affects Chinese products. So something that is developed in, in one area of China could be, you know, knocked off and, and a copy made and sold cheaper in order to make a profit. As I understand the story so far, Lin, is that the market after a while gets saturated. You know, the only way you could sell more is to make it cheaper. What is happening at the moment, as I read in China, is electric cars. You know, the number of electric cars is expanding. At least a lot of people are buying it, but the growth has been slower. So Tesla reduced its price. And now all the other companies are feeling the pressure. If one competitor lowers the price, you know, everybody wants to to do that. It may not always be good for business, but they do that in any case. So copyright issues is, is one thing that I think many have accused China or other countries in East Asia for violating copyright. How do you see that? And, and is it just e-commerce? What are the other main areas of entrepreneurship in the countryside that you notice? What are like the, the general categories was everybody just going to the internet or were they doing other types of entrepreneurial activities? I think I wouldn't, you know, essentialize China as being, you know, just good at copying. And as we could see that, you know, in the example you gave uh, in terms of electric vehicles, EVs, right? So China can be very creative, very, very innovative, right? I think... The reason of, you know, uh, we us having the kind of proliferation of this kind of model of production in China is because, you know, China's obviously a big manufacturing nation and its size, right? So definitely, um, you know, for West, Western, for example, e whether they're e-commerce sellers or, you know, selling the malls, mostly they don't produce there, right? So they would import from places like China, now increasingly like Vietnam, Southeast Asia, right? So I could imagine similar uh, problems happening there. 
And I, I think it's not all bad, right? So a lot of scholars actually wrote about this. For example, Shenzhen industry in the Shenzhen, so-called Shenzhen network in Shenzhen. And because of the kind of really fast kind of direct connection established between prototyping something, design something and prototyping something and mass produce the products, right? In all in one, one area, one place, one district that the, this really have to facilitate the kind of mass production of new products, right? So that uh, a lot of scholars see as a kind of alternative model of innovation that's different from Silicon Valley, where, where you really establish kind of high walls through copyrights, through patents. And um, in, in China, this is a kind of a different world in a way, right? So the innovation happens faster at a different spe speed uh, on different scale, right? So definitely I would say it's not all bad. And, and also the Chinese government, if anything, you know, different levels of Chinese government, even the entrepreneurs themselves have been, you know, trying hard to um, kind of increase protection, copyright protection and trying to, you know, really kind of introduce that uh, to, to the Chinese setting. In response to your second question about what other things that yeah. it's definitely not just e-commerce and definitely I think the internet, whether it's, you know, now live streaming <laughs> uh, become a new thing. So live streaming sometimes is also attached with sales and e-commerce, but also you have, um, you know, rural tourism, right, which actually it's based on a lot of kind of infrastructure investment and rural government really try to, you know, because of you know, protecting the environment and they go in and to uh, really revitalize an area, build new infrastructures and deliberately try to attract tourists. And sometimes using the internet, using live streaming, using, for example, TikTok and Chinese TikTok do Douyin to attract visitors there. So that would be one example. But also sometimes they would choose to work, you know, closer to home. They would go to the counties to work in the counties in service industries. For example, all these kind of new shopping malls open up in the counties and they could actually stay and, you know, live in their, their rural households and, you know, just commute to the city, the nearby county for work. Right. So there are definitely kind of a variety of different types of things that they could engage in. And also traditional farming, a lot of them still, especially where there are, you know, natural endowment in terms of land or lake or, you know, and they would hold on to farming. It's really what we see in the Chinese countryside is kind of mash up or coming together of all these kind of different activities that, um, you know, uh, villagers would hold on to and, but also exploring new, new activities, new opportunities to make some extra, extra cash. So it's definitely not just e-commerce. <laughs> In your book, you have many wonderful pictures from, from the field. One picture stood out for me because I'd been to that building, the electronics mall. Oh, yeah. in Beijing. In, in, Beijing. Oh. in Beijing. Now, I used to go there because this is many years ago. My kids were younger and they, one of my kids loved Thomas the Tank Engine. And oh. I remember once going there and buying cheaper versions of Thomas the Tank Engine every possible friend of Thomas that I got for my son. But what struck me there, and going back to your earlier point, Lynn, is that you could get very easy to copy stuff, but there were also high-end innovative products. So the whole range, China is, as you say, it is not just, uh, it's not just you know, infringing copyright. Some people do, as in many other countries, but there's also high-level innovation. So you could have very high-end electronic goods, it could be sporting goods, it could be clothes, it could be many, many things that Chinese entrepreneurs were doing. So let's return to the city. So yes. we have the, the migrants who went back home, maybe some of them may, may have returned, right? <laughs> uh, if they did not make a, a good profit or, or a good living, if they were not successful, maybe some of them returned. But let's talk about some of these elite entrepreneurs or elite in the sense, and you talk about one guy, Dan, I just mm. thought that was interesting. I think he had a very elite university education. 
and he also had the networks. And as you know, as we all know in China, having networks is important. Your friendships, all, all the people you went to school with, to college yeah. with, those are people you activate when you try to start a, a business. So how was it for these elite entrepreneurs? They could have, I suppose, got a job in any, any company. Yeah. They could have worked for the state, but they chose to set up something on their own. Why? Is it because they had higher level desires? They wanted to do something for society, social entrepreneurship? Was it for the environment? Was it because they wanted to make goods more affordable? What was motivating these elite urban-based entrepreneurs to, to do something new? Yeah, I would say yes to all of the kind of different motivations that you listed. And also even like focusing on one person, they could have mixed motivations. Exactly. Because of social, providing social goods, it could be more kind of selfish reasons want to, you know, hit the jackpot, venture capital, <laughs> and get your company listed and become a billionaire, right? So they uh, they call it right? So you want to become you know, more free financially. And specifically about Dan, what I also find him very interesting when I talk to him, because he was one of the, so a lot of the entrepreneurs that I interview in my urban side, which is Beijing's Zhongguancun district, this high-tech district where, you know, that's near uh, university like Beida and Tsinghua. He is one of the more articulated among all of the kind of more, tech-driven elite entrepreneurs that I talked to. His background is kind of typical, as you mentioned, of a lot of the elite entrepreneurs. He obtained a master's degree overseas in the U.S. So that has been a well-chosen path for a lot of Chinese, uh, well-educated Chinese students, you know, entrepreneurs in the in the city. And he returned actually to, to China to uh, start initially actually to get his PhD in Tsinghua, but at the same time, because of the sort of perks and the, the new mechanism that states really established to encourage even students, right? So uh, students with skills or professors to start their own business and to really establish this bridge between industry and academia, right? He was able to start his own chip company, actually specializing in making of crypto chips while he was still uh, students, a PhD student at Tsinghua, right? I think what is interesting about him was stood out uh, to me. And I would say he represents some of the people I, that I talked to, and he was quite nationalist. <laughs> yeah, because you asked him why, I mean, basically, why did he come back from the US? I mean, he could have done this anywhere else in the world, right? Yes. Yes. He wanted to, in a way, help China <laughs> to you know, and we all know a chip has become such a kind of hot button issue, right? The US-China is engaged in this kind of chip wars and all these sanctions imposed on, on China. And he came back before that. At the beginning, he faced a rather challenging time at the beginning because a lot of investors, whether they're, uh, you know, American, foreign or Chinese investors, they are reluctant to invest into something like chips that would actually take a longer time to, you know, sometimes there's a lot of excessive risk involved. You wouldn't, you know, get your investment back. So he was, you know, faced a lot, a very challenging time at the beginning. But later on, after actually uh, the kind of U.S.-China chip war started in 2018, right? So there was initially sanctions on ZTE and later on on Huawei. The Chinese government came up with the so-called big fund, Oh, Da Jijing really helped to, you know, uh, channel a lot of the resources, not just money, but also talent and other things to startups or companies that uh, specializing in chips. And he was able to, you know, get a lot of funding and a lot of support, governmental support, uh, talking about the connections he had, not just, you know, in terms of academia, his, you know, professors and his, you know, peers, but also in terms of support, right? So the local government support in Zhongguancun district actually helped him to broker his first deal to produce chips for the Chinese, uh, the uh, transportation department, the new generation of uh, transportation cards, right? So that really helped him to initially monetize his business and sustain it. His case made interesting is that 
the nationalism for him is on one hand definitely genuine in a way that a lot of Chinese elite are propelled by this I think anti-imperialist <laughs> sentiments that uh, they want China to become technologically more independent and I think the U.S. sanctions and the confrontation really sort of intensified that desire in a way in a lot of ladies but also it could also be performative in a way, right, that help you to get support, whether financially or through government connections, right? So I think that's sort of make him interesting, but also in a way representative of uh, a lot of other entrepreneurs in the same space, elite entrepreneurs, I would say. It seems to me that when you have these elite entrepreneurs, many of them educated in the United States or in Europe coming back, they may have these nationalist ideas or sentiments coming back thinking, well, the investor state, China, is going to realize, I'm going to realize my dreams, I'm also going to help the country. But there could be also, and there is often this, you know, the reality sets in that when one is used to certain things moving along quickly, rules and regulations move at different speeds, things take longer to establish something, to, to start a startup, one becomes a bit more disillusioned and one begins to compare with how it was in the country that one studied. So mm. when you talk to these entrepreneurs, the initial enthusiasm and then later on the reality, was there frustration that things did not work? And I'm thinking there may be a difference between these elites like Dan and the yeah. more regular entrepreneurs who don't have that elite background like Fu, who may not have the networks to capitalize on. And they may feel that they are facing even greater challenges than these elites who come back and who have all the contacts, they have the money, and somehow they make it big. But those hardworking entrepreneurs who never left the country, maybe mm -hmm. their reality is somewhat different. In terms of the returnees, right, definitely I see, you know, their reaction, the way they adapt to the system or not adapt <laughs> to the system or come in kind of a, a you know, many different, different, different ways. So Dan also had his frustration, like a lot of other uh, returnee elite entrepreneurs. And he, in our interviews, him and other inter, uh, interviewees also com actually complained about, you know, the Chinese bureaucracy, right? And also how, you know, state-owned firms, a lot of them are also, you know, um, specialized in, in high tax like chips and uh, actually have more power for sure, right? So they also have political backing and it's uh, sometimes they will gobble up their patents or their their products, their new products. And, and also the kind of financial uh, system, financial investment system, it's still quite young, quite new in China in comparison to Silicon Valley, right? So you can imagine in probably, you know, two guesses time, right? So it uh, used to be uh, in the uh, 90s, right? So at the peak of the sort of dot-com boom, a lot of the investors who really invest into companies like Alibaba, right? So the first-gen internet companies were foreign capitals. And now increasingly, they are domesticating, uh, nationalizing all this investment. Now we have like RMB investments going into, you know, really kind of hard, what they call hard tech areas like chips, right? So it's, it's still, I mean, like maturing, I would say. So you can definitely envision problems. They have less talent, you know, that are capable at identifying good projects and nurture the, them into kind of a later stage into fruition in a way, right? So that's, I think, a lot of the complaints that overseas uh, returnees have. I mean, they learn to adapt to the system in their own ways. And some of them, actually, I know people who, you know, decided, oh, I, this is not what I expected. I want to go back. <laughs> I sometimes did re uh, go back to, you know, go out uh, again, return to where they came uh, came from to the United States and other places. And the other questions about people like Fu, who are not uh, elite entrepreneurs, so uh, but also in the same space, right? So a little bit more information about Zhongguancun and where I did my field work there in uh, Zhongguancun. So 
I actually stayed in a lot of the kind of newly emerging after 2008 entrepreneurial spaces, for example, co-working spaces, right? So new kind of newly built tech incubators, right? So that I did a lot of my historiography there. And at the beginning, I thought, you know, all the people I met there would be someone like Dan who had, you know, a lot of, um, you know, skill sets or uh, who are, Kind of already established in a, in a way and want to start business, their own business. But surprisingly, I also met some non-elite entrepreneurs who uh, who would be be an, a good example. He was actually once worked for um, a Foxconn in Zhengzhou. Right, he was a former migrant workers. And he uh, was really attracted to uh, the kind of specific space that I, um, you know, did a lot of, uh, spent a lot of my time there, the Garage Cafe, right? So the Garage Cafe is a kind of already a landmark and symbolic venue in Zhongguancun that is really, you know, known for its support for non-elite, sometimes grassroots entrepreneurs like Fu. And a lot of this kind of message were kind of disseminated through media and sometimes state back media as well to, you know, during this kind of mass entrepreneurship innovation campaign. And Fu was attracted there. And he told me through by, by reading the news and by watching the news. And, and I think what happened to him was that he had this dream of, you know, maybe modeling himself after some of the successful stories that happened to uh, non-elite entrepreneurs uh, like him. But, you know, it didn't really happen to him. So I've been following his story there. So he's initially spent, you know, a few months in Zhongguancun. For, for a while, he actually had to, you know, play the role of a kind of waiter at the garage cafe just to have enough money to make a living but he also in the process learned a lot of things for example he met a lot of people there he saw some of the investors and he learned how to write a business proposal he learned how to pitch startups to investors but he didn't you know he didn't really even have a college education right so uh, in the end he spent a lot of time there, you know, wondering about when, you know, the really enthusiasm about mass entrepreneurship and innovation faded and a lot of the VC money, the venture capital money uh, left. And he was also left in cold in a way, but, but, but also uh, disillusioned, but also in a way holding on to his dreams because he told me he couldn't really return to, you know, his old life of being a migrant worker, working in the factories, similar to the people in the countryside. If you see that they all want to become uh, e-commerce entrepreneurs, they want to become entrepreneurs, they no longer want to do hard work of manufacturing, right? So so what happened to him was that he stayed in the area and worked as waiters for several other places, you know, hopping around jobs. And sometimes I know he was also doing a little bit of DD, the Chinese Uber for a while, just to, you know, um, make make ends meet, right? So I, I also actually saw a lot of, you know, uh, learned a lot of stories like Fu, right? I think that's, you know, the excess, I would say, of this kind of uh, entrepreneurialized development, right? So it begs the question of, whether you know this people like Fu should be <laughs> involved in this kind of space and doing this kind of uh, endeavor. Whenever we talk about entrepreneurialism, innovation, we sometimes tend to focus on all the success stories. There are so many who do not succeed. And the question really is, how is the state able to take care of those who fail? There again, I'm back to the welfare state like we have in Norway, where we not we, we may not be as innovative as others, but there's always a backup solution. You, you know that even if you, you try and if you don't succeed, you can try again because there's somebody behind you. So in this day and age where there's this huge focus on U.S.-China conflict over patents or trade, what is the future of entrepreneurialism in China? Do you think this polarized political situation will create more challenging situations for entrepreneurs in China? Or do you think this will lead to even greater innovation going forward? Hmm. Right, right. So that's a good question, uh, but not, not also not easy to 
answer. I would say definitely the competition in a way, and also the sanctions, right, creates a lot of space for Chinese uh, entrepreneurs, especially those who are uh, uh, skilled, right, and who had experience uh, overseas in all these industries like chips, you know, uh, computer sciences and all that. And because China has to come with alternatives <laughs> to, you know, what they use to, you know, the patents they, uh, they, they get from the U.S. And that really opened up a lot of space for innovation and for uh, new businesses, right? So in that way, I would say uh, it's promising. But also, as you mentioned, the lack of protection, I think it's a big problem, especially for those who are disadvantaged. So I would say it's probably more appropriate and easier for them to engage in different types of entrepreneurship. For example, e-commerce, you know, if they move back to the countryside to take startup e-commerce is less risky in a way, although there are definitely, you know, risk involved and, you know, uncertainties, right? So I think they sh um, people like Fu and all, all these non-elite entrepreneurs who uh, should be directed into these kind of more low threshold entrepreneurship instead of, you know, writing business proposals and trying to get funded in places like Beijing and Zhongguancun, right? But I would agree with you. I mean, it's a paradox that if you have a well-protected system, right, you don't have the incentive to really, in a way, work hard and be entrepreneurial. But at the same time, you also don't want excessive risk for those, uh, you know, who fail. That would lead to kind of a lot of uh, social, you know, uncertainties and instability, which is what not not the, the, the party state, the Communist Party want to see, right? So uh, I would definitely see, uh, say the advice here is to come up with a kind of better protection system and social insurance and all that to support entrepreneurs, which I think the state is actually uh, working on that, right? So I think they definitely learned a lesson after the last round of entrepreneurial boom there and a lot of people who kind of failed and how to protect them. I think that's definitely something that the states should be and also I think already have been working on to establish a better social support system for, for these people. Lynn, it was good to finally meet and I enjoyed reading your book. Congratulations. Thank you so much for this conversation and for coming on my show today. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for um, having me here. If you enjoyed this conversation, please spread the news among friends and colleagues and share the link to the podcast on social media. You can tag us on Twitter at Global Dev Pod and Dan Bannock. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.